Well, good morning, church. I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We've been in Hebrews chapter 7 the last couple of weeks, so you should be able to find it there. Hebrews chapter 7. So while you're heading there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have made a decision to embrace a healthier lifestyle in 2021? Anybody jumped in on that bandwagon? Not many. Okay. All right. Well, for the few you have, uh, congratulations. Uh, Keep it up. So if that's the case, you've probably thought about some of the following areas like diet. You know, what am I going to eat? How much and how often? You perhaps have given some thought to exercise, what type or types of exercises and how many times a week and how, many, how much uh, time will you spend. You may have thought about sleep, time you'll go to bed, time you'll wake up, and perhaps some other times of rest. And by the way, at my point in life, I would recommend a nap about every other day. It's very healthy. You may have thought about spiritual disciplines or what we call habits of grace like Bible study and prayer fasting, meditation, solitude, fellowship, things like that. Now, the trouble that most of us run into while attempting these types of lifestyle changes is that changing established routines is hard and temptations abound. And even if we have others praying for us or partnering with us, it still takes a good amount of perseverance and faith in order for these changes to produce good fruit in our lives for the glory of God. And so along the way, it might become necessary to review the benefits and blessings of these changes to motivate us to leave the old lifestyle behind and keep pressing on with the new lifestyle. That's what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he exhorted his audience to stay committed to following Jesus Christ and not be tempted to return to their life in Judaism and the Old Testament uh, covenant. So let's pray. And we'll continue our study in Hebrews 7 today. Pray with me, please. Father, you are our God. We are your people, your children. And this is your word. You inspired it. And we ask this morning that it would accomplish your purposes, your will, and your ways among us. Holy Spirit, we ask for your empowerment, that you would open our minds to the scriptures, allow it to impact our minds, our hearts, our souls, our attitudes, our words, and our actions. Let there be many applications that come out of your word today, Father, and help us to be faithful in turning to you and allowing you to change us from the inside out. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember, the book of Hebrews was primarily written to a Jewish audience who had put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as their long-awaited Messiah. And early on in our study, Pastor Grant told us that the book of Hebrews is the key connective book between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews has been trying to persuade these Jewish Christians that the New Covenant ushered in through the sinless life, sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is better than the old covenant, and therefore they should keep pursuing their new life in Christ and stop pondering their return to Judaism. 
Now, so far in the book, we've seen that Jesus is superior to angels since his name is more excellent than theirs. We've seen that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses since he's God's son and not God's servant. And we saw last Sunday that Jesus gives us a better hope through which we draw near to God. Today, we'll see that Jesus guarantees a better covenant than the old covenant since he is a better high priest made perfect forever. And in chapters 9 and 10, as we continue in the book of Hebrews, we'll see that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is a better sacrifice since it perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. Man, I love those words. Later in the book, we'll see that in Christ we obtain a better possession, a better country, and a better life. Truly, Jesus is better than anything connected with their past life in Judaism. So why would they consider returning to something that's inferior, temporary, and incomplete? And thus our series title, Jesus is Better. Can I get at least one amen on that? Okay, thank you. Now, in this, in this portion of the letter, we're given three reasons why Jesus is a better priest than the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. Number one, Jesus is a better priest because God's promise that the priesthood of Christ is eternal. So we'll look at that. Number two, the eternal priesthood of Christ guarantees a better covenant. So we'll look at that a little bit more. And point number three is Jesus, and I'm excited about this one. Listen up. Jesus is a perfect high priest for imperfect people. And as I look out here, oh, that point is for pretty much all of us, right? We're all imperfect people. So Jesus is a better high priest for all of us who are imperfect people. All right, let's look at number one. God's promise or oath that the priesthood of Christ is eternal. And uh, look, at, look back in Hebrews 7, and let me read 17 through uh, 21. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, a promise. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, speaking of Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. All right, so God will not change his mind. So when he proclaims that Jesus will be a priest forever, we can know beyond any doubt that his words will be fulfilled. So we saw this last week from Psalm 110, verse 4, that was quoted there. But we also see it three times in this chapter. So look at chapter 7 and go to verse 3. God continually repeats this. 7.3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, referring to Melchizedek, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And now look at verse 17 that we just read. For it is witnessed of him. Here's the truth about Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then we see the quote from Psalm 110 again in verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God does not change his mind. Now, if you glance back at chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, it's talking about God's promise or oath to Abraham 
And we see in those three verses that two things never change, the Lord and his word. Those things never change. It's good to know that foundation, don't you think? Isn't that a strong rock that we can stand on? God never changes. His word never changes. Uh, Consider these verses. Malachi 3, 6a should be up on the screen. For I, the Lord, do not change. And you find that in a number of verses throughout Scripture. And then Isaiah 48, speaking of God's word, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, what? Stands forever, will stand forever. God never changes. His word never changes. That's, that's a rock that you can stand upon. And I, always, I like the phrase. It's, it's from a while back, but it's, it goes like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. So here's a question, though. Why is it so important that Christ's priesthood be eternal? Why is it so important that Christ's priesthood be eternal? You want to hear my answer or you want to share yours? I'll share my answer. All right, here's my answer. Maybe it's the same as yours. In a world that's always changing, consider the last year. In a world that is always changing, we can experience stability and peace knowing that our great high priest will never change and that through him we can always draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. If there's one consistent thing about the world is that it's always changing. But the thing about God is he never changes and his word never changes. And so Christ being an eternal high priest means that we can always count on him. It's solid ground. All right, point number two. Christ is a better high priest because the eternal priesthood of Christ guarantees a better covenant. Since he is eternal, then the covenant that he guarantees is better. We'll we'll fan this out a little bit. So look at verse 22 in Hebrews 7. After stating that Christ is a priest forever, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All right? Since Jesus' priesthood is eternal, he can guarantee a better covenant than the old covenant, which was carried out by mortal men who offered imperfect sacrifices. That was the old covenant. Mortal men offering imperfect sacrifices. Christ is going to offer himself the perfect sacrifice and will never die. So you see that there's a better covenant beginning to unfold. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus reckons that about 83 high priests officiated from Aaron, who was Moses' brother, to the fall of the second temple in 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. Now, let's talk about the definition of a covenant. Christ is a guarantor of a better covenant. What, what is a covenant? It's just an agreement or a promise. But keep in mind that God's covenant with us should not be translated as an agreement between two parties. God takes the initiative. He sets the terms. Our part is to know the terms. And in this case, praise God that the new covenant is eternally better than the old covenant. And we should also note that the groundwork for the new covenant began long before the old covenant was even instituted. Consider these verses from the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, 
God is handing out consequences to Adam and Eve and to Satan. So he's speaking to Satan in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring or her seed, and that is singular. In other words, meaning one offspring, which is Christ. He, or Christ, shall bruise your head. In other words, render a death blow to Satan, and you shall bruise his heel, speaking of his death on the cross. So speaking of Christ's victory over Satan through death and, and resurrection there, all right? And then Genesis twelve three, when God is speaking to Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in other words, through your descendants, through a descendant, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God is beginning to progressively reveal this new covenant that is coming through Christ. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, which is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, God's law no longer has to be a duty, as Pastor Grant explained last week. It's no longer a duty. Why is it no longer a duty? Because it's not on stone and it's not on parchment. It's on our heart and it's in our mind. And so Christ can say, my commandments are not burdensome. It's no longer a duty. It is a delight because God's law, his word, is within us. It's who we are as followers of Christ, as regenerated people. And so it's no longer a duty, it is a delight. This is a better covenant. And then Jesus in his last days said to his disciples in John fourteen six, speaking to Thomas, he said, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, it's through me that we come into the presence of God, Jesus is saying. It's no longer just the high priest through blood and all of these ceremonial things coming before God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. No, every believer, every believer can come into God's presence through Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's everything. Jesus is everything, and that's why Jesus is better than whatever they're pursuing or whatever we think we need to pursue in life. And then Paul, in writing to Timothy, says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the unique mediator between God and mankind because he's fully God and he's fully man. In Christ, God draws near to men and women, and in Christ, men and women draw near to Christ. In Christ, God draws near to men and women, and in Christ, men and women draw near, to, draw near to God with the assurance of constant and immediate access. It's constant. You can draw near through Christ to God at any time and do it immediately. The eternal priesthood of Christ guarantees a better covenant. That's why he is a better high priest. Point number three. Jesus is a perfect high priest for imperfect people. Man, I just got more and more excited about this as I was studying this week and preparing for today. 
And you, you, you'll see here in just a minute just how the word unfolds this. But in verses 23 to 28, we see five aspects of the perfection of Christ's person and priesthood that make him the perfect priest for imperfect people. So let's look at these five aspects. Number one is his priesthood is permanent. We've kind of already mentioned this, but let's move on to verse 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, Christ is living forever so he can hold his priesthood forever. His priesthood is permanent. And it's permanent because he lives and will never die. And I love this verse from Revelation 1.18. Christ is speaking. He says, I am the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Woo. Christ is a perfect priest, priest for perf- imperfect people. Number two, because his power is limitless. I mean, the, high, the Levitical high priests were very limited. And everything just had to be just right. I mean, they, you know, they're just limited but christ is not limited look at uh, verse 25 uh, the first part of it consequently since jesus lives forever consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him christ is able to save people fully and completely now and forever There's nothing more that needs to be done in order for us to be saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. All right? And considering that that power of sin, Romans 6.6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's talking about right here and now, folks. Through Christ's death and resurrection, you've been set free from the penalty of sin, all right? You know one day we're going to be set free from the presence of sin, but right now, today, you're set free from the power of sin. You can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit according to God's word and not sin. We have that power. Can we be perfect in that? No. Are we going to flub up? Yes. But that's the opportunity that we have. Yeah, we're quick to acknowledge our salvation from the penalty of sin, and we look forward to the day when we'll be saved from the presence of sin, when we no longer have to wrestle with the presence of sin. But we also forget that we're saved, being saved to the uttermost means that we're set free from the power of sin right here, right now. Now, I think there's an application point in there somewhere. Don't just think about what Christ did in the past and and that we've, okay, once and for all, saved from the penalty of sin. And don't just think of the future saying, okay, I'm no longer going to have to wrestle with sin at some point. But remember the here and now. You've been saved to the uttermost. Being saved to the uttermost means you've been saved completely and perfectly. And you can have power over sin according to Romans. Listen to Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Did, you. did you see that? Can you hear that? Sin will have no dominion over you. I think some of us don't really believe that. I know I don't at times. I don't always walk in that truth. 
But that's what the word says. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you're under God's grace through Christ. Christ's victory over sin is now our victory. What we do from this point forward till the Lord calls us home is we grow in the sanctification process. And hopefully throughout that time, we're being changed and we're growing more and more like Christ and exercising that power over sin. It takes honesty. It takes confession. It takes being honest and open with people uh, in the body of Christ. But God's given us the resources. I'm not preaching perfection. I'm just preaching the fact that Christ has given us power over sin. That's part of his high priestly ministry. And this point number three has something to do with what we just said on point number two, all right? He's a perfect high priest for imperfect people because of his present ministry of intercession. He doesn't just empower you and say, okay, get out there and do it. He says, I'm watching over you. I'm praying for you before the Father. He is with us all the way in this. He is not a distant high priest. Okay, look at the second part of verse 25. I'm going to start at the beginning. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So even though there's nothing more that needs to be done in order for us to be saved eternally and completely, Christ is presently, right here and now, sustaining and supporting us through his intercessory ministry. He's always looking out for you. You know, that's, that's a lot of what we do as, as parents and grandparents is that we look out over our kids and our, and our grandkids. Or maybe you're a big brother or a big sister and you remember looking out for your, your younger siblings. We did our best in all of those ways. But Christ looks out for us perfectly. He's always watching. And not in a way to take a club and bat you on the head when you make a mistake. But he's there lovingly pleading your case before the Father, interceding. He's on the job. He's always looking out for you. Listen to Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. We're declared righteous. God does that. He justifies us. He declares us righteous in Christ. Who is to condemn if we've already been declared righteous? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. More than that, he's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Here's Christ who died for us, rose from the dead, went to, ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God Almighty, and he's thinking about you and me, and he's interceding for us. Christ is a better high priest. He is way better. You know what the text goes on to say after that in Romans 8? It asks a question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it lists a few things, and basically the answer is nothing. What motivates this high priest to always be on the job, looking out for us, always interceding for us? It's his love for us. 
Today's Valentine's Day, the day of love. If you don't want to know what real love looks like, look at Christ, our great high priest. That's love. So what does the intercession of Christ mean? Listen to these words. The intercession of Christ means he is seeking the presence and hearing of God on our behalf. Christ is seeking the presence and the hearing of God the Father on our behalf. I mean, doesn't that thought almost make you weep? It does me. I just can't fathom that. You know, Jesus, uh, before he, he left this world, uh, in John chapter 17, he, uh, he offered what, was, what is called his high priestly prayer. So he began interceding for us even before he left this earth. Look at John 17, verse 20 to 23. I do not ask, in other words, he's praying, he's interceding. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. Have you ever thought about that? The glory that God gave Jesus, Jesus gives to us. That they may be one, even as we are one. This is an incredible prayer. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And what's the outcome of unity and oneness in the body of Christ? Here's the outcome. That the world may know that you sent me, that the world may know that God the Father sent God the Son and love them, us, as you have loved me. That God the Father loves us in the same way he loves the Son because we are in the Son and the Son is in us. That's how much God loves you. As he loves his own son, he loves you. Wow. Jesus is a perfect high priest for imperfect people. Point number four, because of his sinless character. His sinless character. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. It was fitting. Why was it fitting that we should have a holy, blameless, unstained, separated and exalted high priest? Because we're just the opposite of that. That's why it's fitting. He's a perfect fit for all of us. He's holy, which means he's set apart completely for God's work. He's blameless. His life was one of moral perfection. He's unstained. Nothing marred the sinless beauty of his life. He's separated. He was in no sense compromised by his contact with sinners. And he's exalted. His position in heaven is God's final seal of approval. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. So when you think about mankind's total depravity and the hopeless and helpless position we're in without Christ, 
his perfection in person and priesthood makes him the perfect fit for lost humanity. And number five, he's a perfect high priest for imperfect people because, his, because of his perfect offering. Look at these last two verses, 27, 28. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, the word of God's promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Speaking of his humanity. Jesus was not only the perfect priest, he was also the perfect sacrifice. He had no need to offer a sacrifice for himself, but rather offered the sacrifice of himself. He had no need to offer a sacrifice for himself, but he offered the sacrifice of himself. And if you want to just turn over a page or so to Hebrews 10, 14, Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, in other words, once for all, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We have a perfect high priest who perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. That's, that's us. In God's eyes, we're perfect. We're complete because Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. The important thing here is to be to be in Christ and for Christ to be in you. And when all when that is true, then he's a perfect high priest for imperfect people. Here's my conclusion. I know a miracle, right? Can be done. Thank you, Dennis. Although we may be tempted to doubt God's goodness and grace when we go through difficult times, and, and we are, we're tempted to doubt when we go through tough times, we can be confident that Jesus is our eternal and faithful high priest who intercedes for us and provides the mercy and grace we need on a daily basis. We must always remember that Christ has saved us from the penalty of sin the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. Christ is not only the author of our eternal salvation, but he's the source of our present salvation. I think we need to remember that, don't you? He, he is the source of our present salvation. Our interceding eternal high priest is, is saving us on a moment-by-moment basis. And because we're saved to the uttermost, the following things are true of us. And I want to read a few things from uh, just a page that's entitled, Who I Am in Christ, all right? Because we, as imperfect people, have a perfect high priest. These things are true of us in Christ. I'm God's possession. I'm God's child. In Christ, I'm beloved. I've been redeemed by the blood, set free from sin and condemnation, set free from Satan's control, forgiven of all my trespasses, washed in the blood of the Lamb, justified freely by His grace, given great and precious promises. I have access to God. I am complete in Him. I'm sanctified, loved eternally, 
kept by the power of God, quickened by his mighty power, seated in heavenly places. I'm a citizen of heaven, protected from the evil one, secure in Christ, more than a conqueror, a victor. I have access to the Father. I have a living hope, an anchor to my soul, a hope that is sure and steadfast. I have peace with God. I can do all things through Christ. I can find mercy and grace, and I can come boldly to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4. I cannot be separated from God's love. I cannot be moved, and I cannot be taken out of my Father's hand. I know. So here's a personal application, all right, that I came away with, and I hope that you'll come away with one or two applications from this as well. So the older I get, the more I realize the truth of Psalm 90, 10, and 12, written by Moses. It says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So Moses prays this. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So just as the Levitical priests passed off the scene one after another, so do pastors and other human leaders. So the best thing that spiritual leaders can do is keep pointing people to Jesus, whose priesthood is powerful, complete, and eternal. And the only thing I can say is to God be the glory. All right, let's pray. Let's pray.